Hey, good morning. My name is Hannah. If you don't know me, I'm a congregant here, and I work for a church called St. Lydia's, which is just down the road in Gowanus, and we meet on a Sunday and Monday evening, so I come here on a Sunday morning, which is lovely. Um, This morning, I'm going to be talking about how Anglican theology changed my life, which sounds pretty geeky, and it kind of is. Um, So this morning, you're going to learn a bit of history about the Anglican church and about a very specific way of doing theology. Um, But you're also going to learn quite a lot about me, about my personal story, and about how uh, my relationship with God and with the Bible and with church has really changed over the past few years. But before I go any further, I want to introduce you to a quote that I'm going to be coming back to this morning. So hopefully it is up. Uh, will be up behind me, and it says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So just take a second to let that sink in a little bit, have a look at it, and I want you to kind of try and hold on to that idea in the back of your mind while I'm speaking, and I'm going to come back to it later on. But first, a few facts for you. So, the Anglican Church is the third largest denomination in the world, Christian denomination in the world. So, Roman Catholic is the first, um, the Orthodox churches are the second biggest, and Anglican is the third. And it is made up of 85 million people in over 165 countries. And one of its central ideas is unity in diversity. So, the Anglican Church kind of looks very different. Um, around the world as it reflects the culture of each different country. And so, as you probably know, the Anglican Church here in the US is called the Episcopal Church. Um, In the UK, where I'm from, it's called the Church of England. And uh, before I moved here to New York, I went to a Church of England seminary in London. So, full disclosure, the um, Anglican Communion, like I've said, is huge, it's international, it's very varied. I do not pretend to be an expert. So, my knowledge, my experience is very, very much limited to the Church of England, and that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. But the Church of England is actually, it's very broad. So, um, even within that tiny little part of the Anglican Communion, Uh, you can experience pretty much every style of belief and of worship um, that you can imagine. So you have Anglo-Catholics. Some people say that they are more Catholic than the Catholics, um, and they worship God with robes and choirs and incense and icons and Hail Marys. And I actually got married in one of those churches in England, and the priest told us that... um, there was a Polish girl who was coming to the church for months before she actually realized it wasn't the local Catholic church. Um, So then you have uh, liberal mainline Anglicans, but you also get charismatic evangelical Anglicans. So they have happy clappy guitar worship. Um, They like speaking in tongues and prayer ministry and healing and prophecy, things like that. And you also have conservative evangelical Anglicans. So they're probably not quite as fundamentalist as the religious right that you have here in America, but um, they are certainly very theologically and very socially conservative. So what happens when people uh, want to train to become an Anglican priest? Well, they go to seminary, and the different seminaries in the UK have kind of become known 
for different traditions. So you just kind of know that um, if you're a charismatic evangelical, you go to this one. And if you're uh, Anglo-Catholic, you go to this one. And if you're conservative evangelical, you almost definitely go to this one. Um, and in theory, all of these different colleges are supposed to teach the full spectrum of belief and worship so that when you graduate and you are ordained, you can go and uh, preside and serve in any one of these different churches. In reality, you might imagine, uh, this doesn't really work. <laughs> so if you have in a seminary a bunch of people who deeply love um, choral evensong and elaborate liturgy that was written in the 1600s, the day that they are supposed to practice worship choruses with a guitar, it's not really going to go very well. <laughs> no one's going to have a good time, right? And and it works the other way. So um, the trendy charismatics with their guitars are really going to struggle to know what to do with the robes and the incense. And so um, we know this. We know everyone has their different comfort zones. And in a way, there's nothing wrong with that. But it can mean that we sometimes end up stuck in our own little bubble. So the seminary that I went to in London is new. Um, it was founded in 2007 by two bishops who merged together two smaller Anglican training colleges. And one of these colleges was uh, liberal Anglo-Catholic. It had a lot of liturgy. And the other one was charismatic evangelical, and it was full of happy, clappy hipsters. So the two bishops did this merging of the two different traditions deliberately, and they founded the seminary on something that they call generous orthodoxy. And the best summary of what generous orthodoxy means is the quote that I showed you at the beginning that says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So the idea of generous orthodoxy is that there are some things in the Christian faith that are essential. Things like uh, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, stuff like that. On these things, as Christians, we should have unity. These tend to be the kinds of things that are written down in creeds, um, like the Nicene Creed and the uh, Apostles' Creed, and things that all Christians have believed for thousands of years. Um, that's the orthodoxy part of generous orthodoxy. But there are other things that are open to interpretation. And we know this. We know that 10 different Christians could have 10 different opinions. Um, things like how we should pray, or how we practice communion, or who to baptize, or how to interpret certain Bible texts, um, various different ethical or social issues. All of these things we can have liberty. We're able to disagree. But in all things charity, so this is the idea that no matter how strongly we disagree with one another, um, we should always treat our fellow Christians with love and with respect. We should always look at the person with whom we most strongly disagree and recognize you are a human being made in the image of God just like me. So, like the Bible passage that we read this morning says, love one another with mutual affection. Live in harmony with one another. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
So these are the generous parts of the generous orthodoxy. So in practice, what this meant was that at the seminary I went to, we were able to disagree with each other. Um, we disagreed on a lot of stuff. Things like how to interpret scripture and uh, women's ordination and LGBTQ inclusion and um, whether we should pray to Mary and the other saints, whether we should baptize babies or adults, um, exactly what happens to the bread and wine at communion. And you know that these are all of the things that churches and seminaries and denominations have split apart over hundreds of times over the years and are still splitting apart over every single day. Um, but on these issues, the students and the staff at St. Melitus were able to hold a lot of different opinions. And we didn't split apart. Instead, we were committed to learning and worshipping together, even when we disagreed. So this experience was very, very new to me. I didn't grow up Anglican. I had no experience, really, of the Anglican church. I grew up in a Baptist church, and it was an evangelical Baptist church, and they told me that the word evangelical simply meant Bible-believing, so that an evangelical Christian meant a Bible-believing Christian. And for some reason, it never occurred to me to ask what other Christians believed in if they didn't believe in the Bible. <laughs> so I remember asking somebody once, why is it that you hear about um, charismatic evangelicals, but you never hear about charismatic liberals? And they said, oh, well, you know, liberal Christians don't really believe in the Holy Spirit, so they can't um, really be charismatic and have the gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> yeah. So when I went to seminary, I met people pretty much for the first time in my life who came from totally different Christian traditions from mine. And this, it was a hugely eye-opening experience. At times it was very, very funny. So uh, my friend Alice comes from a tradition where prayers are read from a prayer book in the liturgy. So she had never really heard people spontaneously praying out loud before. And she found it very funny um, the number of I just wanters that she heard. So like, Lord, I just want to thank you, and Lord, I just want to praise you. That would never happen in a liturgy. And the first time that she prayed for somebody who spontaneously fell over, like slain by the Holy Spirit, the look of total horror on her face was amazing. So it was funny, it was eye-opening. Sometimes it was a lot more serious. So for me, one of the the most powerful things was um, taking part in a full-on high Anglican mass with robes and choirs and an organ and incense and, um, and to experience how beautiful that was and how emotionally powerful when it was led by people who know and love that service intimately and who practice it week in and week out and do it well. I started to get to know and appreciate liturgy in a way that I had never done before, and I started to feel at home in the depths and the meaning of the words. But for me, the most important thing was that I started to build real relationships with people who described themselves as liberal Christians, and I started to ask them what they believed. So I asked them if they believed in the Bible, and they said, of course we do, we're Christians. If we didn't believe in the Bible, we wouldn't be Christians. And I was like, oh yeah, good point. <laughs> and I asked them about the Holy Spirit, and they said, of course we believe in the Holy Spirit, we're Christians. 
So in this one class, we were asked to get together with um, someone in a pair who was from a totally different tradition than us, and we had to describe to each other the last service we'd attended at our own church. And this is how I met my friend Michael. So um, he described his service. Uh, there were priests with robes, there was a procession, there was an altar, there was liturgy. The priests faced away from the congregation towards the altar. Then I described mine. So there were no robes, there was no altar, there were no liturgies. There were songs with a guitar, there were children running around throughout the whole thing. Uh, the preacher climbed up a ladder and then sat in an armchair as his sermon illustrations. They couldn't have been more different. But then we started talking about our experience of meeting people from a different tradition. And I told him, I've always been told my whole life, like, oh, those liberals don't really believe in the Bible and those liberals don't really believe in the Holy Spirit. But now I've met you, and you do. And I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. And he said, do you know what? All of my life, people have said to me, oh, don't go to that church, don't talk to those evangelicals. As soon as they find out that you're gay, they'll never speak to you again. But you're not like that, and I feel like I've been lied to. This experience that I had at St. Melitus, this experiencing this generous orthodoxy was profoundly transformative. It changed me, it changed the way that I look at the world. And I think it's something very special about Anglican theology that created that environment. So, Anglican theology is often described as both and theology. So, explained very simply, this just means that when there are two different views on a theological matter, rather than picking this one or that one, you try to, to kind of take both of them and kind of hold them. So, it's not an either or, instead it's a both and. And I like to think of it a little bit like the four gospels that we have in the Bible. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, rather than having one definitive account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, instead we've been given these four different accounts. Um, four different tellings of the same story from different people, written at different times, from different perspectives, with different agendas, different emphases. And they each tell the story differently, and sometimes they don't match up, but that's okay. We, we can sit with that dissonance, it's okay. We don't have to try and make the stories agree. And in fact, sometimes we actually learn more from wrestling with that dissonance. And this is what Anglican theology tries to do. It tries to always choose the both and, and to sit with that dissonance. And this way of doing theology is not an accident. Um, it is something that is very deliberate and that grew out of a very particular time in history. So in the 16th century, you might have heard of the Protestant Reformation. It was a whole big thing. Martin Luther went and nailed some things to a door, although apparently he didn't actually nail them to a door. But the important part was the Protestant Reformation was happening and Europe was literally tearing itself apart. Um, there were huge theological battles going on between officials in the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers. And what we have to remember is that at the time, this stuff was a matter of life and death. So people were literally martyred over 
these things. Um, kings and queens were beheaded and dethroned. And eventually, there were full-out wars between um, Catholic states and Protestant states in Europe. And yes, of course, the wars probably were actually about power and territory, because that's what all wars are about. But the excuse for this war and violence was pinned on some very serious theological dif uh, differences and disagreements. So the Roman Catholic Church really valued the Pope and the sacraments um, and the church tradition that had been built up over hundreds of years. Um, Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers valued preaching the Bible above everything else. They de-emphasized sacraments. They didn't see the need for priests and bishops. So Anglican theology grew out of this incredibly polarized environment. And the two people who were most key in creating it were uh, Thomas Cranmer and Richard Hooker. And at this point, the Church of England was brand new. And they created a new theology for the Church of England that was neither Catholic nor Protestant. It was deliberately both Catholic and Protestant. So Richard Hooker wrote that the true church of Christ, sorry, the true church is the congregation at which the pure word of Christ is preached and the sacraments duly administered. So he emphasized both the sacraments and preaching the Bible. And one of the biggest arguments in the Reformation, you probably know, is um, over exactly what happens to the bread and wine at communion. So the traditional Catholic position was that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus in that moment. And Martin Luther's view actually stayed pretty close to this. In his writings, he really wanted to hold on to um, an idea of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But some of the other reformers uh, moved away from this. So there's a guy called Zwingli who was in Switzerland. He um, called communion a memorial service. He emphasized Jesus' words of, do this in remembrance of me. Um, and so in this tradition, the bread and the wine are only symbols. Um, they represent the body and blood of Jesus. They're nothing more. So the Anglican prayer book, which was first um, de developed in the 1500s, deliberately holds together all of these different views of the Eucharist in its liturgy. So I'm going to read you a section from the current modern English version. It says this. Draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you, and his blood, which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So that's a piece of liturgy, you might have heard it before, it might not seem that remarkable. But when you actually look at it, in the first line it emphasizes salvation by faith, which is incredibly Lutheran, that was Luther's real big doctrine. But then straight away it says, receive the body and blood, which is an incredibly Catholic idea of what is happening when you take communion. Then it uses the word remembrance, like Sphingley, for the memorial service. But then it swings back the other way again and says that we feed on him, which is Catholic, but in your hearts by faith, which is Lutheran. So this massive theological debate is packed into one tiny piece of liturgy. 
And the entire Anglican liturgy is like this. Um, it is the result of centuries of theological reflection, of always consciously choosing both and. So I'm not going to lie, this way of doing theology has a lot of critics. It's not universally popular. And I've heard people say, if you get two Anglicans in a room and ask them a question, you'll get seven different opinions. And maybe that's true. <laughs> but, yeah, it definitely does have its problems. Um, it's very, very difficult to hold together an international communion of Christians in the face of strong disagreements. Um, at the moment, the Anglican Communion Worldwide, you may know, is having very serious disagreements about LGBTQ inclusion. And this is a serious problem. Um, for me, it's particularly a problem if this ideal of holding together a communion comes at the expense of oppressing people who are already being marginalized. And I know that my seminary wasn't perfect. I know that it didn't get everything right. Uh, the Anglican Communion certainly is not perfect. Like any church, there have been times in history when the Anglican Church has got things very wrong. But what I love about Anglican theology is this commitment to always consciously choosing the both and. And the unity in diversity, the generous orthodoxy, the not trying to force the different stories to agree. And to keep on choosing this, even when it's hard. And actually, you know, that is one of the things that I love about Forefront as well. So obviously Forefront is not an Anglican church in any way, um, but actually I think our approach to theology can be quite similar. So over the last few weeks, both Jonathan and Jen have been um, reading out some of the things that you guys have shared about why you love Forefront. And multiple people have talked about hearing things in the sermon that they struggle with, but staying anyway or of wrestling with questions and with doubts and with dissonance and finding a non-judgmental and loving place to do that. And there are definitely times for me when I sit here and I listen to a sermon and I think, oh, I wouldn't say it like that. Or when we do communion and the way that it's done isn't my comfort zone. But ultimately what matters is that this church is saying, no matter if you agree with this particular sermon or not, make space to listen to God, ask good, good questions, expect God to speak. And no matter what we believe happens at communion, this church is saying you are welcome at God's table, there is room for everyone. These are the things that matter. And ultimately, I love being a part of, of, of Forefront here because I trust the leaders. I love their um, commitment to opening up discussion rather than shutting it down. And one of the things I like the most is that we don't all agree. It challenges me, it helps me to grow. This idea of unity and diversity is very important to me. And today this is the day that the church traditionally celebrates Pentecost. And one of the things that I love and that I always notice in the Pentecost story is that it is about opening up diversity, not about shutting it down. So when um, the people are gathered from all over the world and Peter stands up to speak to them, the miracle that happens isn't that they suddenly magically are all able to understand Greek and hear what he says. Instead, the miracle is that they all hear him speaking in their own native language. They didn't have to become homogenized Greeks in order to receive the gospel. Instead, the gospel message becomes diverse to welcome them. 
So one of the things that the Anglican Communion says about itself on its website is it has always been a strength that cooperation continues and flourishes despite significant disagreements on certain issues. Other Christian traditions look to the Anglican Communion to learn from its ability to have good disagreements. The ability to have good disagreements. I think that the world needs that right now, right? We can look back at the 16th century and wars between Catholic and Protestant states and think that we've moved on. But actually, we talk about culture wars in our day about the very unique disagreements that we have. During the US election, a friend of mine here um, shared with me that she felt like she was living in a liberal bubble, that she went hunting through her Facebook newsfeed, trying to find anybody that was a Trump supporter that she knew in real life that she could engage with on a human level. And I know I kind of felt the same last year when Brexit happened. It sometimes feels like our world is becoming more polarized. But our scripture today said, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is not easy. But I think where this happens is when we come to the table, when we come and share communion with one another. And there's another line in the Anglican Eucharistic liturgy, um, which actually comes straight out of the Bible passage that we read together today. And it says, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. And ultimately what I discovered, the time that I spent at St. Melitus was that when you engage with people who think and live differently from you, actually nobody leaves the same way that they came in. And when we come to the table, we realize that what is important is not what we believe, but how we act and the way that we treat one another. We come to this table week after week alongside people that we disagree with and we serve and we feed one another and we are transformed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are bigger than our minds or our hearts or imaginations or our eyes can ever see. We thank you that your love is broader than our minds, that all are welcome at your table. Thank you for people who challenge us, who ask good questions, who help us to grow. Thank you for the people that love us even when they disagree with us. God, help us as your church here to continue to love and accept one another, to make space for everyone here at your table. Amen.